It seems that we live in an ever-changing world, and yet many of the theories that attempt to explain the structure of the political and economic forces that guide our lives often assume states of persistence and permanence, or at least that change happens infrequently and slowly. Professor James Robinson of Harvard University, along with his colleague Darren Ashimolu, have examined this paradox and are presenting a paper on the persistence of institutions as part of a programme of economic seminars at Warwick University. James, we perceive the world as being quite a dynamic and fluid place. Um, is it really possible for economic and political institutions to be persistent? I, th- I think the, the answer is yes, but you have to think about it in the right way. I mean... At some level, societies look dynamic and fluid and changing, but at another, another level, they don't. I, I mean, I think that, it, you know, if you thought, for example, about the contrast between Latin America and North America, then over a sort of long sweep of history, the claim that Latin American societies formed in different ways than North American society during the colonial period, and that though those different differences have kind of endured today and account for a lot of the differences between Latin America and North America, at some sort of grand level, that's a sort of eminently plausible uh, conjecture, which most historians, I think, would agree to. Mm. Uh, That's also consistent with with, some sorts of empirical evidence. For example, if you look at... um, if you look at the de- density of indigenous populations in the Americas at the time of the conquest, you find that, that has a, that's highly correlated or highly associated with economic outcomes today. So countries that had historically higher densities of indigenous people tend to be much poorer today uh, than countries that had relatively low uh, levels of indigenous people. And that's consistent with some notion that you know, in those countries... Uh, colonial powers created societies that were were based on the exploitation of indigenous peoples, and uh, that type of society is somehow just not uh, pr- you know just it's just not consistent somehow with a modern dynamic uh, economy. Mm. On the other hand, of course, one one gets into the details. Uh, you know, one sees uh, enormous amount of change, uh, variation. Latin American countries they became independent, they became republics, they wrote constitutions, they built schools, they wrote became federal, they became central, they became federal again, they had revolutions, they had democracy, you know, so so there's all sorts of stuff changing. And, uh, you know, one can point to specific things like slavery or whatever, but slavery, we know, was abolished finally in the 1880s in Cuba and Brazil. So, so all this, there's all this change, you know, how can, how can things uh, stay the same? So I, I, I suppose that our, a lot of our research has been aimed at looking at these long-run patterns of comparative economic development, but now we're trying to we're trying to find a way of sort of reconciling these long-run patterns where, where apparently this enormous kind of inertia in social organisation mm-hmm. with the obvious fact that there's tr- at higher frequencies there's a lot of change going on. So. so how are these economic institutions persisting then? They must be being maintained in the interests of somebody. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's probably, there's probably quite a lot of mechanisms at work and, and uh, o- only some of which we've tried to... Uh, be more precise about uh, in the research we've done so far, although that's that's sort of our main agenda at the moment. You know, what one kind of naive idea, which 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 is what we def- which is what I'm talking about today at Warwick, which I actually I think goes a long way in some context, is to sort of think that, as my mother used to say, you know, there's many ways to skin a cat. So so if you think of uh, a particular organisation of you know if you think of a particular organisation of society like a plantation economy or in Peru or the Andes you know or in Central America during the colonial system where where there was a small elite uh, Spanish descended elite uh, society based on the exploitation of uh, Amerindian uh, labour 
then, uh, then you know, Amerindian labor can be exploited in different ways, and slaves or African, you know, African people of African descent can be exploited in different ways. Mm. And so f- institutions such as slavery or Indian tribute or forced labor can disappear, but other instruments can, uh, can replace them. I mean, the example that I like a lot is the U.S. South, that uh, if you think about the U.S. South before the Civil War, uh, you have a society which was based on sort of plantation, agriculture, cotton, slavery. Uh, this was a relatively backward, uh, undynamic economy, but it was very profitable for the people who owned the slaves. Mm. The Civil War led to the defeat of the Confederacy, to the abolition of slavery, the the enfranchisement of the freed slaves. But what's astonishing about the U.S. South is how rapidly an economic system that looks remarkably like the economic system that existed before the Civil War recreates itself mm. in the 18, late 1870s and 1880s. And slavery was gone, but instead there was Jim Crow, lynchings, and the Ku Klux Klan. And, uh, and so in some sense the same, the same objective was uh, achieved using different different mm. instruments. That's what I mean when I say there's more than one way to skin a yeah. cat. I mean, you make quite a distinction in the paper between sort of two levels of society, the, the elites and then the civilians, and that very much the, you, you, you sort of posit the de facto political power in any given state in the hands of those elites, whether that's tempered by the political institutions in something like a democracy, which gives more power and authority to the civilian population, but that very much... These, this elite minority is able to execute its de facto power mm. um, to persist itself or right. persist the institutions that benefit itself. Yes. Um, so the underlying interests stay the same and the underlying ability of certain groups to to get their interests remains the same and that's a large force towards persistence even mm. though... I was going to say, if I was a Marxist, you know, I'd be talking about the substructure and the superstructure, but this is not really a Marxist theory because a Marxist theory would be based more on that the power of the elite came from its control over assets or the means of production. And I, I'm not sure that's really the story here. Mm. I mean, you, st- you, you make the point in the paper, actually, that the power of the elites is more in the fact that they are a minority and are able to coordinate responses to change more effectively than necessarily the civilian mass. Yeah, I mean, that's a traditional idea in sociology, and, uh, you know, it was made famous in economics by the work of Mansa Olson. But, you know, if you go and read what Mosca and Pareto and people said, you know, in the late 1890s, they mm. basically said the same thing, which is that minorities have this ability to, to act, uh, co- you know, collectively. But I, I'm not sure that's the... I mean, I don't want to push that angle too mm. much. That You know, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with the sort of the fact that some groups are just sort of social networks in some sense, you know, that, that people are able to exercise collective action, you know, exercise this power because, because they're a cohesive social network. And just taking people's assets away from them doesn't necessarily stop them being a cohesive uh, social network. I mean, of course, there are cases where, you know, there are cases in Latin American history in Bolivia or Mexico or wherever, you know, or even in African history, I mean, after the the fall of Haile Selassie and in mm. Ethiopia, where there's very large, you know, agrarian reforms, redistribution of wealth, redistribution of assets, and you see the former elite, in some sense, sort of disappear uh, and be replaced by a new elite behaving in a relatively similar way, you mm. know. So that's 
that's a you know that's something that's what sociologists would have called the iron law of oligarchy but but that's you know i i that's something which is on our agenda but i you know that's a mechanism which is very distinct from the mechanism we're talking about in this research but you know you have other cases where you know the french revolution would perhaps be a good case where the elite lose their assets and their land and their and their you know their perquisites that doesn't mean that they they disappear as a coherent group mm. in society and indeed you know after waterloo they're able to go back to france and reclaim a lot of stuff that they lost you know so so if i take your assets away from you that you that doesn't necessarily reduce you know completely remove your power so 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 it's not i'm not sure i mean we're still thinking about <coughs> this but i you know i guess that's mm. i mean all of those things may be important small size you know the assets structure of assets uh but i think in some sense what works here in the analytics is this this notion that you're a social group who which maintains its coherence despite you know, the, so you may have a democratization in society, which dramatically shifts political power, at least in some dimensions, away from the elite. But the elite still maintains its coherence as a group, and they're able to take actions to offset mm. those changes. I suppose that's one of the, the one of the questions I wanted to bring out from your paper. Actually, was this notion of um, the principal power, the de jure political power, mm-hmm. kind of sets what the the economic institutions um, that. But, by working with those who have de facto power. But with a democracy where, of course, the civilian, the citizens as such, um, have a greater access to that political power, you still say that the the elites still somehow manage to retain their economic power and that democracy, in in that sense, doesn't actually lead to necessarily changes in the economic institutions. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's right. But how that happens, I think, differs a lot in different societies. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you look at the case of British democracy historically, then... You know, aristocratic elements were able to maintain enormous amount of control, you know, even through the formal institutions such as the House of Lords. I mean, the House of Lords at least exercised a lot of power until, you know, the Liberal government of Asquith around about 1906 when, hmm. when uh, you know, when, when Asquith, when they tried to start blocking social reform legislation and Asquith basically threatened to emasculate them and they backed down. And then after that, the House of Lords, you know, but the House of Lords, you know, was some sense a, a long time after kind of, mass democracy arise, which is about 1867 in the Second Reform Act in England, they provided a kind of check on the radical interests mm. emanating from the House of Commons. I mean, it's also true, you know, that the, and this is sort of, you know, it's also extraordinary the extent to which traditional, the traditional elites in Britain were able to compete successfully when democracy arrived. You know, the mm. Liberal Party and the Conservative Party were able to kind of reinvent themselves. A lot of the Labour politicians, you know, all ended up going to Oxford and Cambridge and somehow being captured by the existing or internalising many of the norms of the kind of existing elites. And I, you know, but in some sense, this was the genius of the British model because that system in a kind of peaceful way, engineered a transition to a much more democratic and egalitarian Mm. society. I mean, if you look at, say, estimates of income inequality in Britain in the 1860s and 1870s, no, Britain was very unequal. I mean, it's like kind of Brazil now. But then by the time the 1930s and 1940s came, that position had changed dramatically. There were huge increase in social mobility and... uh, So I I find that, you know, and the the contrast to that, it would be these sort of Latin American countries where you have, I mean, there's, you know, you have these very different cases. I mean, what the the case that we talk about in the paper, which I, which I know, which I know kind of more about since I spend a lot of time uh, doing research is in Colombia is, is Colombia. And what's interesting about Colombia is that, 
you know, the elites managed to do something sort of more than in Britain in the sense that they managed to they managed to transform themselves. You know, the traditional 19th century parties, which are, you know, basically been running Colombia since the 1850s at least, mm. managed to transform themselves into sort of vote uh, getting machines. There was always a lot of political. I mean, there was always democracy in Colombia of sorts going right the way back to the 1850s or elections there was lots of fraud you know people yeah. started fighting when they lost but but somehow the party the traditional parties managed to keep control of the system even when mass democracy arrived in the 1930s and there you know the difference in some sense is that you never had anything akin to the labor party so the labor party you know perhaps you know to some extent got captured by existing interests but nevertheless the labor party did lead to a lot of change in britain mm. in colombia you never had anything like that you know potential labor you know potential leaders who tried to enter the political system you know were assassinated uh that you know that's part of the story uh, but it's also you know part of the story is that um that the traditional elites were able to somehow keep control uh of this system i mean i i you know we could talk more about that it's not yeah. i'm not sure i totally under, i'm not sure anyone totally understands how they managed to do that i think it's something to do with the structure of the party systems how they formed how they operated but there you, know, you see there you see the elites ma- are able to manage the system very well because they're able to block the entry of of parties with different policy agendas mm. so if you can control the policy agenda even if you have democracy then that gives you an enormous amount of power because you know people a lot of people may want something very different but they have no way to they have mm. no way to get those to, to to influence anything unless you you know political parties that's how you change things right yeah. so i mean you talk about south america a lot, uh, sort of quite a lot in um, in the paper and um, african states as well is there something about those areas where the political system can be changed very very easily i mean well it, this may be inherent uh, in all these kind of relationships Political systems are easier to change than economic systems. Is that is that the case? No, I, I think that's a very good point. I mean, that this is something we're sort of struggling with. That uh, a lot of political science and political economy and economics is is focused around what we would call uh, strongly institutionalized polities. Mm. So, so in, you know, in a case like Britain or Sweden or the United States, we're very used to thinking that the rules of the game, you know, the constitution, the laws, etc., have a kind of large impact on the way politicians behave on their incentives on their constraints and things like that Mm. so people kind of play by the rules but this is obviously much less true in you know west africa or in bolivia Mm. you know that somehow there are rules there and the rules are important but there's a lot of leeway within the rules and and i think that's possibly you know so we we make this distinction between strongly institutionalized polities and weakly institutionalized polities i can't really give you a, a satisfactory definition of yeah. what the <laughs> distinction is but we make that distinction because because our senses i mean we've written elsewhere about this but there's mm-hmm. you know there's the way that politics works is sort of qualitatively different in some sense in those countries than it is mm-hmm. in the united states or in britain is it so. a question i mean is there a question in which when you look at somewhere like the states or, or the uk that those controlling elites invest in equality and invest invest in stability as being in their best interests whereas um, in South America perhaps the sort of slightly more turbulent political environment um, actually makes it harder for those kind of civilian majorities to organize effectively you know I think what what is interesting if you think about the British case again or the US case is that you know elites or obviously, you know, in some sense, they're much better off under democracy. You know, the Duke of Westminster and all these mm. people, they've done fabulously under democracy. You know, they're much better off in democracy than they would be, you know, risking having President Mobutu. 
you know, or baby Dr. Valier running the country. Mm. So I think, you know, whereas in elites in Latin America or in Africa or whatever, they'd be much happier somehow to avoid democracy, at, even at the risk of having some, at the risk of massively polarizing the political system. I mean, either, either you know, either having to use someone like Duvalier to repress people mm. or, you know, risking the extreme, you know, which would be something like Chavez, you know, where where elites in Venezuela were able to kind of manage, to also manage in a, in a very clever way, this democratization that took place after 1958. But then, you know, in some sense underlying that, there's, there's such discontent with the mm. way things work that discon- when there's a, some sort of crisis, discontent can manifest it Self in a way which is terribly risky to the elites. I mean, you yeah. have Chavez, who's sort of out of control. I was going to ask a very about, radical. Yeah, I was going to ask about the sort of the, the current map of South America, which has sort of gone under sort of quite an interesting series of changes, political changes over the last couple of years. I'm thinking about sort of Bolivia and Venezuela and the kind of the the new relation, the new political uh, elites that are coming. Well, not political elites, but the new political powers that are coming into into play there. Um, do you think they could buck the trend? Is there are there sort of examples where economic elites have actually genuinely lost their position of superiority? Well, I think there are. I mean, there are historically. I, you know, I think that. I mean, there are historically in Bolivia, for example, that mm. would have been true in the revolution in 1952. You know, they the landowners were expropriated. The the three, you know, there were three families that owned all the tin mines. They they were nationalised, and you know, and those people are, you know, gone and. Uh, uh, I, but, you know, but in some sense, what's interesting about those cases is, you know, how in the 1950s, after the Bolivian Revolution, a very different bunch of people started running the country. But in some sense, they were still from the same group. I mean, it was white, uh, you know, it was this minority of white people, Spanish descent. You know, it was a very mm. different. It was more a group of urban interests, you know, who tried to create a one party state along the Mexican lines. And what sort of, a, you know, so, you know, in some sense, like a lot of the instruments and the details changed. But some sense of fundamental power relations in society didn't change that much. Does, it, does the old anarchist um, adage of it doesn't matter who you vote for, the government always wins hold true then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. There's, a, there's a funny story which, uh, which an Argentine friend of mine told me, which is that somebody asked the cook in the Casa Rosada, which is the presidential palace in Buenos Aires, you know, wasn't it, wasn't it, you know, wasn't it terrible to have all these presidents, you know, all these changes of presidents coming in, they, you know, they wanted to have different dishes, and, you know, wasn't that awful for him? And he said, no, 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 he said, the, the presidents are different, but the guests are always the same. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I, I mean, I think that, you know, that's a... That's an image of society, you know, which in some sense, as you know, as you're suggesting, is that, you know, has a has a long pedigree in social thinking. And, 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 and you know, I, I don't want to over push that idea, you mm. know, because obviously there's lots of places where that's not that's not right. Um, but I guess here we you know we're just trying to say that this this there is something in that. And it and it explains uh, some of these puzzles that well, some of the things that the puzzle does. I mean, I think, you know, go back to the Bolivia case. That's another very interesting example where even after you had democracy, you know, the, the the great kind of mass of indigenous people in some sense were mm. only able to influence what went on first when they became an effective social movement outside of the political system you know not outside yeah. of the party system and then finally you know after the, they f- formed this effective social movement they then transformed themselves into a political party and then they were able to influence anything but the, just before that the fact that these people it was a democracy these people at least after 1982 these people were voting had very little influence on what happened until they actually formed a party and were able to really enter into politics. Yeah. So, is it, I mean, the the model that you outline kind of strikes me as being 
this, it, it's kind of we, we see the same sort of relationships the world over. It just depends on the political system as to how explicit those relationships actually are. Um, I suppose in, if you look in South America, then those power relationships are fairly on the table, whereas in the UK, perhaps a lot of it's sort of much more implicit and behind the scenes. I think there's something in that. I mean, I, you know, I guess it, in, in lots of cl- places where you have these sort of racial cleavages, mm-hmm. you know, you have large social distinctions based on race. It's perhaps clearer to see what's going on, you know, whereas in Britain, it's more of a homogeneous society. And uh, that may be true of lots of Western European countries. I mean, in the U.S. South, I told a story earlier about the Civil War and what happened after the mm. Civil War. But, you know, you can hardly ignore the fact that the pe- most of the people who were getting exploited were black. James, thank you very much. All right. Thank you.